All right, if you would turn in your Bibles to Titus chapter 1. Titus chapter 1, verses 5 to 9, as we look at this uh, portion of God's Word this evening. All right, well, let us hear God's Word. Titus 1, 5 through 9. This is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained into order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. If anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife, and his children are believers and are not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination, for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or a drunkard or violent or greedy for gain, but hospitable, a lover of good, self-controlled, upright, holy, and disciplined. He must hold firmly to the trustworthy word as taught so that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Uh, Amen. Let's uh, bow for prayer. Father in heaven, thank you for your word tonight. And I do pray that as we look into it, that you would be particularly helpful to us as we reflect on it. And may it um, guide and direct us in in our thinking and in our lives as we uh, seek to apply these biblical principles and uh, to our lives, to our church, and bring honor and glory to you. And we ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. So after a fairly unusually long introduction, uh, g- greeting, uh, Paul comes straight to the business at hand, uh, which he mentions in, in verse 5. And the the first thing we see is the assignment that Paul gave to Titus. Uh, he says, this is why I left you in Crete, so that you might put what remained in order. So there's a, the implication that Paul had ministered in Crete, even though we don't have a historical data to back that up, that Paul obviously had ministered in Crete, perhaps planted the church but everything wasn't organized in the way that it should have been or needed to be. And uh, so he sends Titus back there to set those things in order. It's interesting how that phrase is differently translated. The ASV here has that you might put what remained into order. And the, the word is what remained. Um, the New American Standard also, in order what remains, the New International is what was left unfinished. The New King James Version, the things that are lacking. But at any rate, the assignment that Paul gave to Titus was to go there to Crete, to set things in order, get things fully organized the way they needed to be and complete the work of planting this church and establishing a gospel base in this uh, area of Crete. And uh, the next thing he says, this is part of his assignment still, uh, uh, put things in order and appoint elders in every town as I directed you. So from the very beginning in Paul's ministry, and this is, you see this in the record in Acts, what Paul would do 
he would go into an area, he would preach the gospel. And of course, his typical pattern was he would go to the synagogue first, uh, preach the gospel. And then when the Jews turned away from the gospel, then he would go to the Gentiles. But he would uh, collect a gathering of people and uh, we're not, it's not described in detail, but probably set up these worshiping and preaching stations. And then he would um, have elect elders in each, uh, in each place who might carry on the work, maintain the work, as, uh, and then he, he would move on to another town. So in this particular place, <clears throat> um, t- uh, Titus needed to complete that work. Maybe there were a few elders. <clears throat> in fact, the, the phrasing of appointing elders in every town sounds like there might have been an overseeing group of elders for the general vicinity of Crete, but that what Paul had in mind is for Titus to go around to the different towns where different churches had grown and developed and have elders elected there. And they would be elected by the people and he would lay hands on them just as um, Paul had laid hands on Timothy and uh, by implication Titus too. And Paul had directed him to do this. So this is all under the command of Paul that he has this assignment, um, uh, again, establishing elders with the laying on of hands, as Paul said to Timothy, do not neglect the gift you have, which was given you by prophecy when the council of elders laid their hands on you. So these officers, uh, and you would assume deacons eventually or along with them were elected and put into office too, but these men were given, were part of Titus's assignment to put them in place, to establish the church and allow it to grow and uh, to be strengthened and that it would be then a a gospel preaching station that then could be, um, reach out and edify the people and the people would grow in the Lord and hopefully then extend the missionary labors elsewhere. So the assignment is to uh, appoint these elders, and then he gives the qualifications for elders in verses 6 through 9. And uh, many of these qualifications are given in 1 Timothy 3. So here's a good Bible, uh, English Bible exam question. You can count on it. You'll be asked, uh, where do we find the qualifications for elders or for officers. And you got to be quick. It's 1 Timothy 3 and Titus 1. So you get that in your head. It's kind of like another good English Bible question is, where do we find the Ten Commandments? We're in the Ten Commandments. You ought to know one from this morning, Exodus 20. What's the other one? Mm-hmm. Close. The, we, had the, we had the guest Deuteronomy 6. Is Deuteronomy five okay? Now you got to be quick on these things. This, we're not. There's no. There's no um, uh, prizes for good order. You got to get the answer right. But at any rate, the so you can compare this list with the list over in First Timothy three. And uh, before we get into these qualifications, I want to ha- take an aside a little bit on the terms 
of bishop and elder. There are some church traditions, church orders, that have those as two separate offices. And you'll have elders or even, or priests, or uh, there are ministers that will serve in, in churches. And then you'll have another office of bishop, which is usually over a group of, of churches or over a, a region of churches. And then they can be archbishop, archbishops. <clears throat> and uh, I want us to think about this for a minute There's nothing wrong with dividing up responsibility between men of differing abilities and talents and uh, capabilities. There's there's nothing wrong with that. Someone may be more gifted in administration and another gifted in other areas. And that's fine for those to be delegated and and divided out. But the, um, the thing that we need to see in this text is that Paul uses the word elder and the word bishop interchangeably. So there you're in verse five still, um, left you increase so that you might appoint elders in every town. Elder, the word presbyteros uh, is translated properly as the word elder. You hear us talk about presbytery. Presbytery is the word for a gathering of elders In our local church, the gathering of elders uh, has come to have the label session. It could just as easily be called presbytery. All that means is a gathering of elders. But in our particular denominational uh, setting, the local elders uh, are given the, the title session because they sit in session to rule. The elders of the regional church are the gathering of the presbytery. So representatives of each local church meet a few times a year in what's referred to as the presbytery. That's the region that we belong to. And then the national church is uh, the general assembly. But if we come down to verse 7, it's a parallel qualification as we see earlier. But here we have in verse 7, For an overseer, as God's steward, must be above reproach. Here's the word episkopos. And you see how that naturally um, connects itself to the word episcopal. But it's the word translated bishop or sometimes overseer. Uh, And so we have these two words, uh, elder and bishop, not as two separate offices, but as two separate functions of the same office. And so the elder term, label, communicates the idea of rule, uh, authority, governing the church, uh, guiding the church in that sense, making decisions on the, on the basis of the needs of the church. And then the word for overseer uh, is really the word for shepherding, and it communicates the idea of the, the role of the, of the leader of the church as one who shepherds the church. He oversees the church. He visits the church. Uh, Christ is called the overseer, the bishop of our souls. And so you have a different role. Same man, same office, but a different role and responsibility. So the one 
you could consider making decisions and ruling and shepherding more being involved in the people's lives, uh, visiting them perhaps in their homes, being concerned for their needs and caring for them. And both of those roles are very important in the work of a, uh, of a pastor and of an elder. And uh, just to give you a thought on shepherding or overseeing or bishoping, uh, turn to Acts chapter 20, verse 28. So Acts chapter 20, verse 28. <clears throat> this, is a, these, this is the words of Paul as he's traveling back to Jerusalem where he will be arrested. He stops to meet with the elders of the church of Ephesus. And uh, they, he didn't go into Ephesus because he thought that would delay his journey too much. So they came to greet, to meet him. But this is part of his message to them in Acts 20, verse 28. It says, pay, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you bishops, overseers. To care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. So they have this called to watch out, to shepherd, to be on guard for the church because of these um, false teachers that are going to come in. And a man may have greater strengths in one area or another, and there's nothing wrong with that. But uh, the calling to him is to be, the calling to one who would be a leader in Christ's church is to be a ruler and a shepherd of the flock. And so those two terms, we don't need to get confused about them. They're just two different functions of the same man, the same office. So then we go into the different categories of qualifications. Uh, The first is the more general one in uh, in verse 6, pointing elders in every town in verse 5, as I directed you, if anyone is above reproach and... This communicates the idea that it, it cannot mean that the man is perfect because there is no such thing. But it, it communicates the idea that he needs to be free from some of the more odious and offensive traits <clears throat> that would um, get in the way of a, a faithful and active ministry. This, this term, this, uh, this idea of being above reproach is repeated in verse 7, which we read for an overseer as God's steward must be above reproach. He needs to have qualities that commend him for the job and not have a bad reputation or a bad report from those without. And so, again, it's not sinlessness, but it has to do with the qualities of character that should be in a man who would serve in that particular office. Uh, the second area of 
of um, qualifications is again in the area of family conduct. We have this in um, we have this in First Timothy three. Uh, after saying he, if anyone is above reproach, the husband of one wife. So he begins again with the idea of a married man <clears throat> would not, not necessarily mean that the man has to be married. Paul apparently was not married. We're not sure if Titus was, not sure if Timothy was. But nevertheless, uh, if he's married, he should be the husband of one wife. But it's interesting, it's not just saying he should... Uh, simply be married or only married to one woman, which obviously that's important. But literally, the phrase is, he needs to be a one-woman man. And that means that his commitment, his love, his affection, his service and connection is to one woman. <clears throat> to have a man who's, only, who's married but has a wandering eye would be uh, an offense to God, an offense to his family, to his wife, um, an offense to the church, and it would disqualify him for being in this particular role. So he must be the husband of one wife, a one-woman man, committed to his marriage, committed to uh, his family. And we see the same instruction over in First Timothy 3. <clears throat> then he goes on to say, and his children are believers and not open to the charge of debauchery or insubordination. And this this particular qualification has been and can be used very severely against pastors and elders, uh, that his children have to be um, believers and they have to be um, not uh, disobedient. And... um, one author writes, one of the more, it's actually a commentary that I, I think has helpful in many respects, but here he writes fairly severely about this particular qualification. He says, they ought not to be, speaking of the minister's children, they ought not to be prodigals, open to the charge of reckless behavior or an ungodly lifestyle. They should be believers following the faith of their father, the failure of a man to produce believing children suggests that he's not capable of exemplary leadership, discipline, and the ability to pass on the faith to others. If a man cannot succeed in the more intimate circle of the family, he will not succeed with the more stringent relationships of the household of God. And so if a minister or an elder was to have a, a grown child who wandered away, that man is saying, he should leave his office. Uh, and he cites the illustration of Eli in First um, Samuel 2, uh, which is a, a very troubling uh, part of the scripture and Eli's lack of control over his sons. <clears throat> so it's a, a challenging requirement and it prompts some questions in my own mind. And... Um, some commentaries reflect some of these thoughts. Uh, one question, I don't have answers to these. I have questions. So you can wrestle with your own answers to these things. <clears throat> but the first question is, a man can't command faith in his children. He can't make them believe. 
Obviously, we know that the source of faith is the work of the Holy Spirit in the heart and life. And um, sometimes a minister's or an elder's child will turn away. Sometimes it's because they see conflict in the church or perhaps mistreatment of their father. Uh, Sometimes for those that are living, I mean, the the, um, reputation of PKs is notorious because they live in a fishbowl and often feel a tremendous amount of pressure. Um, I'm not excusing anything, but I'm just stating the question is, he can't command faith in them. Uh, another question is, what does it mean to be a child? The specific Greek word for this tends to lend itself toward um, a true child as opposed to what we see in First John Young women, young men, different term, <clears throat> different Greek phrase and term all together. So First Timothy 3 says he must manage his own household well with all dignity, keeping his children submissive. So if they were submissive when they were children, but as they grow into adulthood and they struggle or wander away... Does it mean that he's not qualified then? Then if they come back to the Lord, is he then qualified again? And if they leave, he's unqualified. If they come back, is he qualified again? Again, it's a question. I don't have an answer for it. Um, so what if the pastor's child returns? What, what then in all of this and um, I've known there's a book particularly about this story I've known an OPC minister's child who wandered away but then came back it's questions but the minister the elder needs to be uh, managing his household however we interpret this particular section. The third area of characteristics of the blameless overseer have to do with his, his character. And we see overlap on this with the First um, Timothy 3. It says first in verse 7, he's God's steward. He's been given a trust and he needs to carry out that trust with with careful responsibility. He's a steward of the mysteries of God. And so he's entrusted with that work and he needs to carry that out. To be able to do that, Paul gives first five negatives and then he gives six positives. <clears throat> so he says there in verse seven, he's not to be arrogant or other translations, not overbearing. In other words, he's he's not ruling uh, to exercise some sort of power trip on himself. He has to serve the people and be willing to, to care for them and serve them, not to beat them down. Not quick-tempered. Uh, it's, um, you, can't, you can't have a short fuse if you're in leadership, especially if you're in leadership of a church. Because <clears throat> they're... People are going to get mad at you, and you're going to get mad at them. And if you have a short fuse, you're in deep trouble. 
There has to be patience and grace toward one another. Um, I once had someone ask me, what's the most important thing about um, pastoring a church? And I don't know whether it was a moment of inspiration. I think it was right. I said, the key thing is grace. You got to have grace toward other people. They got to have it to you, too. But um, we can't be overbearing toward one another. It just won't work. It'll destroy relationships. Um, Not given to much wine. Some have not a drunkard. In other words, he has to have self-control in that area of his life. Uh, Not uh, violent and not greedy for gain. So a lot of several different things there that have to do with his temper, his um, his being able to be patient and having self-control, not being in it for the money. Uh, He needs to not have those negative characteristics. But then positively, Paul gives six positives as qualifications for an elder or an overseer. He says, first, he must be hospitable. Uh, literally, it's one who loves a stranger. Uh, are they? He needs to be the kind of person who's willing to reach out to people, uh, not only welcoming them into his home, as opportunity has it, but welcoming them into his life, uh, having um, the ability to uh, show hospitality to someone, caring for them. He, mean, he needs to be one who loves what is good. He wants to get what is good, not, not focus always on what people are doing wrong, <clears throat> but focus on what people are doing good and try to build up that which is good in people. He needs to be self-controlled. Uh, he needs to, this, this is repeated exactly in 1 Timothy 3. Uh, he has a responsibility. He needs to govern, govern the church, but he begins governing himself. Uh, he needs to be upright. Uh, that is, he's righteous in, in the way he conducts his life and his business and the decisions he makes. He's holy. He's devoted to God uh, spiritually, and he's disciplined. Uh, You see the overlap of self-control, discipline. He needs to be a student of the word. He needs to be uh, carrying out his responsibilities in a very disciplined and careful uh, manner in uh, the control of his passions, being under the control of the spirit. So he needs to have he needs to cultivate these um, <clears throat> positive qualities, and if you go back and read First Timothy three, you'll see a lot of parallels in those things. Avoid some of the negative uh, qualities and pursue the positive qualities for ministry. And then verse nine, he ends with. <clears throat> Uh, It might be parallel to apt to teach in the first list, but as Titus, along with Timothy, are a lot about having to deal with false teachers, this is a very important qualification. It says, 
He must hold firm to the trustworthy word as taught. There's a a deposit of truth given to us as a church, given to a minister, given to elders in the word of God, in the teaching of the church. Our deposit is not only in the Holy Scriptures, which is most important, but given to us in documents like our Westminster Confession of Faith and the larger and shorter catechisms and It's what Jude referred to as the faith once for all delivered to the saints. So there's this body of truth, and we've encountered this before, this body of truth that we need to hold fast to. It guides our thinking, it guides our faith and our hope and our understanding of the truth. And there are different ways Paul makes reference to this. And uh, I won't have you turn to these, but in Romans 6, he talks about that they obeyed from the heart the standard of teaching to which you were committed. There's a standard of teaching, a body of truth. Uh, The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, the inspired word of God written by the apostles and the prophets. And it's a, again, Paul refers to it several times as a stewardship of grace. There's this body of truth And an elder must be holding firm to the trustworthy word. And you see, that's uh, a real danger uh, and, and could be potentially a serious problem in any church, is holding fast to that word. Because one of the temptations that come, we want our church to grow, and God has blessed us richly. We're really we're growing, a lot of people coming. We're happy about that. <clears throat> but there are people that come sometimes. I'm not speaking of anybody here. But sometimes people come to your church and, and they'll want things to be different than what you're doing. Why can't we have a little praise and worship music? Well, it's just not the way we do things. It's not the standard which we follow. Um, we had Diana had one visitor a couple weeks ago complaining about Diana that the, the hymns we were singing weren't old enough. Now, what's crazy about that is probably what he had in mind were revival hymns. And we don't have that many of them in our hymnal, but we have pretty old hymns in our hymnal. But that's what I mean is you're kind to these people, but they come in and they want things to be different. And we have to have, we have to be willing to stand firm to the trustworthy word and not accommodate our culture uh, and hold fast to God's truth. And then Paul gives the reason why the elder needs to hold firm to the trustworthy word, worthy word. There's, he has two purposes in this. This is all in verse nine. So that he may be able to give instruction in sound doctrine. So the first reason he needs to hold fast firmly to the the word of truth is so that he can teach it. It becomes a part of his life so that he can teach the children, he can teach adults, young people. He can present that word and lay it down and and explain what we believe and and why we believe it and and lay it out so it, it will help them be firm in their faith. And established in their faith. 
So one of the reasons he needs to hold fast to that word of truth is so that he can teach it and present it to the church, the people in the church, uh, and build them up in their faith. And then the second reason is, and also to rebuke those who contradict it. Uh, As Paul warned in Acts 20, and as Paul warns here in Timothy and Titus, there are going to be these false teachers. In fact, he's going to get right into that in verse 10. There are these false teachers that are going to come into the church, maybe have been a part of the church, and they're walking away from the truth. And we need to be able to, in a with kindness, uh, rebuke the one who is uh, contradicting the truth. Uh, again, we don't need to be overbearing. We don't need to be, need to be quick to be have a quick temper. We don't need to be unkind. We can be gentle and patient. There are times when people are thinking incorrect doctrine and we don't need to come down on them with all kinds of uh, hostility, but maybe patiently try to draw them along and uh, working our way through the truth. An elder needs to be able to do both, rebuke harshly when necessary, but most of the time with gentleness. Um, Let's turn to 2 Timothy 2, 24. Just as a comparison text um, of this. In 2 Timothy 2, verse 24, Paul writes, And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil, correcting his opponents with gentleness, that God may grant, perhaps grant them repentance, leading to a knowledge of the truth, and they may come to their senses and escape the snare from the snare of the devil, after being captured by him to do his will. See, that's the goal, even when you're having to rebuke the one who is contradicting the truth, is to deal with them in gentleness so that they might come to repentance and a knowledge of the truth. You're trying to draw them in and direct them in a proper path. And so that's the qualification, that's the the character of the the, the work that the elder needs to do in this way of, of holding fast to the, the word of truth in teaching and in correcting. And so as we wrap up this selection of the calling of men to serve as elders and, and deacons in the church, we need to pray uh, for them that serve as you do. I know you do. Uh, to pray for them, uh, to um, when the occasion comes and you're being asked to elect for elect an officer and elect an elder or a deacon to office, to prayerfully reflect on that, on these qualifications, and just pray that God would build our church in a good way and that we would build up one another in our most holy faith. Amen. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you so much for your gracious care and uh, of us in, in our church 
Thank you for this careful instruction by Paul to Titus that we can benefit from as well. We pray that we might serve you in the church, each each one of us, in our very respectful opportunities and roles. I thank you for each of our children here. I thank you for them and what they can bring to our lives as a church in enriching us in in so many ways. I thank you for our young people. I pray for your spirit's work in their hearts as they deal with many uh, temptations and tests and questions that come into their minds. Guard them. Build them up in the most holy faith. Help us all as adults, as parents, to um, to serve our, our church and our community here well and and uh, not only in praying, praying for one another and encouraging one another in, in our walk with you, that together we might see the, the, the person of Christ glorified and exalted and your work furthered. And we thank you for this opportunity and we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.